At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Market moving insight and analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber and Leslie Pickard. Kramer has the morning off. More signals this morning that the backup in yields is beginning to pinch equities at the margin. Uh, futures are weak. NASDAQ's down a percent over the past couple of days. Ten-year, 130. Energy prices spike on what's become a true humanitarian crisis in Texas. Our roadmap begins with the GameStop hearing with the CEOs of Robinhood, Reddit, Melvin, and Citadel all set to testify. Then we will have the latest on that. Very cold weather in Texas as the governor warns of continued misery ahead. And later, Walmart drags down the Dow after falling short of the street on earnings. We'll break down the quarter ahead of our exclusive with the CEO later on this morning. Carl. Guys, there will be a lot of interest in the hearings uh, this afternoon on GameStop, as we mentioned. Pretty extensive uh, list of people giving testimony. Leslie Cashin uh, writes in this morning. He writes, I only hope they dig down deep enough and discover, as I assume, <laughs> that there were people disguising themselves as retail uh, steaming on the crowd. I hope they dig deep as well. You know, it's, it's hard if you look at kind of the history and the track record of hearings on complicated issues. And this is nothing short of complicated. I mean, we're talking about market structure here. Uh, we're talking about issues of fairness in the markets. We're talking about the potential for manipulation. I mean, none of these things are easy to, to really dig into on the surface when you've got, you know, 54 lawmakers and a slew of people on the other side of the table serving as witnesses. Uh, but I agree with Cashin. I hope they dig deep. I hope they find some answers. Uh, after out of today's hearing, um, you know, it'll certainly be one of the more history making uh, hearings that we've seen, just given the caliber of witnesses that have been called forward. David, I, I don't know who you're most looking forward to uh, <laughs> to hear from today, but they've certainly got a diverse group of perspectives, all men. Not diversity on that front. but No, no uh, diversity there. Uh, and you're right. Listen, I don't know if they will focus most perhaps on Mr. Tenev and Robin Hood, given it was sort of central to the story in so many different ways and whether the bulk of the questions may be directed towards him. But I'm interested in hearing from all of them, as you might expect. Uh, you know, Griffin, we don't hear from too often. Obviously, uh, Gabe Plotkin is very quiet, typically, as he has been, having, having had a great run of success for a long time until he ran into something he just did not risk adjust for. Uh, and he says that in his letter. I'm curious, Leslie, you've gone through all their opening statements and more. I mean, Tenev's ran to 15 pages. I don't think he's going to actually read all of that. Uh, anything stand out to you or, or sort of kind of what we expected? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's important in, in looking through these statements to understand exactly what each person cares about and what they think they're going to be asked about. They want to get ahead of that in advance. So, for example, you've got Gabe Plotkin of Melvin, who, who takes on short selling straight you know, straight from the very beginning, basically saying, you know, our, our short positions do not manipulate the price of stocks in which we invest in. We do this as, a, as basically a directional bet, a belief that we have about companies falling to what 
they think is their intrinsic value. Just as simple as that, uh, basically. Interestingly, you look through um, Ken Griffin's testimony, and he, he gives very little mention of the fact that he also runs a $34 billion hedge fund. It's all about his securities business, Citadel Securities, their market making, uh, his market making company, which is separate from the hedge fund, but uh, really got kind of caught up in a variety of conspiracy theories about how that impacted Robin Hood's decision to restrict trading and so forth. Um, they have said that they had no um, bearing on Robin Hood's decision to limit uh, buy orders related to GameStop and a whole host of other securities. So then you go, you get to, uh, you know, Robin Hood, Vlad Tenev's testimony, which, as you mentioned, is incredibly long. Uh, but he talks about a variety of issues. He looks at this issue of, uh, you know, what's known as payment for order flow P. PFOF. Uh, this is effectively how Robinhood makes money. It's a way that uh, they can provide commission-free trading for its users uh, so that market makers, they do provide Robinhood essentially for, with a rebate in order to trade their orders, in order to execute their orders. And Vlad says that Robinhood customers receive more than a billion dollars in price improvement thanks to PFOF. But that's something that lawmakers have already come out in saying that they are, uh, you know, is worthy of investigation. They're a little bit skeptical of that, to say the least. And then, of course, you've got Steve Huffman, CEO of Reddit, uh, saying that there are no bots or nefarious actors that he can tell that have participated on this Wall Street bet site. Uh, and Keith Gill, who I think a lot of people are looking forward to seeing today, uh, just, you know, as a, a character, a key central character in this whole situation uh, where, you know, he is there basically as the retail investor poster child of this whole phenomenon, Carl. Uh, it's true. Uh, and, you know, you're going to see on the bottom of your screen the words Game Stopped a lot today. That's not our producers being clever. That's the name of the hearing. It's called Game Stopped, Who Wins and Loses When Short Sellers, Social Media and Retail Investors Collide. So those three big silos of, of interest that are going to be represented in question at this hearing today. Uh, Maxine Waters, of course, uh, chair of the committee, was on Closing Bell uh, last night, talked about not so much Robin Hood, although she addressed it, but also um, Melvin and Citadel in particular, what she wants to hear from Ken Griffin. Here's what she said. I want Citadel to tell us what role they played in what happened, I guess, January 28th. Um, and I'm simply asking for facts. Uh, I do not come with any con preconceived notion uh, that I know everything that went on. And I'm asking them not to come uh, with a lot of uh, extraneous material. Tell me exactly. What role did you play? Meanwhile, David, uh, some of these reports that the SEC along uh, similar lines is weighing just whether or how to uh, demand bigger transparency on the short side. So uh, there's going to be a, a big education for a lot of people today of the capital markets. Yeah, uh, you know, that always comes up, of course, uh, that question of more transparency. In fact, it is the transparency to some extent, Leslie, that seems to have gotten uh, Melvin in trouble in the mm -hmm. first place. Uh, a lot of their positions having been shared to some extent and that allowing people to go after those names in which they had a very significant short position. And also important to remember here when we talk about what happened, uh, Leslie, it wasn't just Melvin. It was a many hedge funds that perhaps they had not fully accounted for that followed his trades. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that followed because given his track record and everything else, it simply followed along to some extent. And so perhaps they did not fully recognize not just how large they were in a particular name, Obviously, they knew that, but how large so many other hedge funds were as well on the short side. 
And all of that, of course, uh, leading to a huge mismanagement, essentially, of the portfolio. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up, David, because one of the key uh, you know, arguments against disclosing short selling and short positions is this idea that you could get you know, too many crowded trades like you do on the long side. But on the short side, it can be even riskier if you do have a situation where you know, maybe your favorite hedge fund manager has piled into a variety of companies that they want to short. Uh, and then you have this kind of pile on effect. Uh, another uh, argument against disclosing short selling is this idea that, you know, it could cause management to confront the various short sellers and, uh, you know, lead to some sort of debate and, and make short sellers not want to short the stock, which they argue short selling is good to help bring the prices of particular securities closer to their intrinsic values. Now, on the flip side, Carl, is this idea that transparency is, is always beneficial for the markets to understand the risk that's actually out there. Uh, and the fact that we do get so little data on short selling in particular is something that, uh, you know, for companies as well as the, the various players in the marketplace can make it so that they almost have a black box of this pocket of risk that people just aren't as accustomed to. Uh, so it'll be really interesting to see if the SEC does actually move forward and mandate even some sort of disclosure uh, with regard to short Although, selling. Although, Leslie, if there's one thing that has stopped people from single-name shorts, it's this. Right. Squeeze. What's happened here to Melvin in particular, and as well to the uh, Schulhoff's uh, fund. I mean, a couple of those funds uh, is enough to make, as I've uh, reported, any number of hedge fund managers who perhaps might have taken more sizable positions say no more. Well, look at what happened with Herbalife. Right. That was a, a very public short uh, by Bill Ackman. Of course, this was uh, many years ago now. Uh, but then you, you he by being so public with that short position. And of course, he is a, a you know, runs a very large hedge fund, took a very large position uh, uh, betting against Herbalife, uh, you know, brought in Carl Icahn to the fray. And uh, that created a, a squeezing dynamic uh, just by kind of yep. being upfront about what his position is, uh, you know, in shorting that name. So you're right. The fact that, uh, you know, if you do disclose, you, you almost lend yourself to just being a target of a short squeeze. Yeah. Guys, we're going to watch that. Obviously, it's going to be very busy uh, this afternoon, and we'll monitor it with Leslie's help and Kate Rooney's, of course. In the meantime, we've got to turn our attention to the state of Texas, uh, the energy crisis there, which is becoming a sort of a series of cascading failures. Uh, you got, obviously, a couple dozen dead, uh, still hundreds of thousands without power. Some of the anecdotal um, signals of the pain down there, David, people boiling snow, uh, using their propane uh, tanks uh, on their grills to get some drinkable water, uh, livestock obviously uh, dying in the cold, uh, some crops have been wiped out, and then energy uh, with a fifth of refining capacity in this country now out. Our Bob uh, futures highest since middle of 2019. Yeah, um, and they're not now natural gas is not going to be leaving the state to some extent for a while. Uh, yeah, Carl, we're watching it closely as we need to. You can see, of course, WTI is now above $61. We've talked about the resurgence in a number of uh, the major energy companies' shares. That's been going on for some time, by the way. Uh, an out-of-favor group from last year, certainly uh, since, let's call it, since the election, strangely enough, has been <laughs> up sharply, uh, as have, and this has nothing to do with this story, as has financials, which we can talk about in a bit. But, Leslie, it's it's a humanitarian crisis right now. They are restoring power, thankfully. There are fewer, uh, fewer homes now without power than there were certainly this time yesterday. 
Uh, but we're watching it closely, and they're still enduring some very, very bad weather. They are. And, and there's some really interesting second derivative effects that are uh, starting to really play out here. Number one, with the, the chip makers, uh, there are several large companies, Samsung, NXP, uh, that have had to sail, scale back their production at a time uh, when semis, of course, are already under pressure for supply chain constraints. Uh, but they have major factories in Austin, Texas, uh, and they have been asked by the power providers there to, to basically show shut down amid all of this in order to conserve energy. And so I'm sure we will start to see uh, more stories like that take place as uh, they work through all of the various challenges in in Texas, Carl. Yeah, um, of course, uh, the debate continues about which method of energy, which fuel source is the true culprit. Uh, uh, You do have the governor of Texas who had suggested that it was, in fact, a signal of the failure of renewables. Talk about the limits on nat gas exporting out of the state. Here's what he said. I have, earlier today, issued an order effective today through February the 21st requiring those producers that have been shipping to locations outside of Texas to instead sell that natural gas to Texas power generators that will also increase the power that's going to be produced and sent to homes here in Texas. If there is some good news, David, it's not just the fact that they're expecting temperatures in the 50s this weekend, but for the first time, really since the middle of Monday, uh, the grid load is climbing, uh, suggesting that they are able to at least restore power to the people who've been without power the longest. Yeah, uh, and we can only hope that happens as quickly as possible. Carl, I mean, you can't help but note that everything becomes, unfortunately, a political issue, as did as has this. And I know you've noted it on Twitter as well, in terms of at least renewables being associated with the Democratic Party and obviously the Republicans in Texas sort of going after that. Uh, sometimes you wouldn't expect that to be the case, but unfortunately it is there. So they're fighting that out as well, while they also obviously try to get the lights back on. Yeah. And, you know, it's going to be interesting. Uh, you know, Leslie, the House is expected to pass COVID relief at the end of next week. But infrastructure now, as part of the discussion, is not that far behind. They're throwing out figures like two trillion, even three trillion on the Dem side. And it'd be curious to see how much gets incorporated late in the game, really, as they start to craft this package. It's been a couple of years yeah. we've been talking about it. But to what degree does the grid now become part of that uh, equation? I think that is a fantastic point. And I was actually talking uh, to a big sustainability investor yesterday uh, about this very topic, this idea that infrastructure spending uh, under this new administration with regard to clean energy will be a, be- a really big component of it. Uh, and, and I think, you know, just the timing of this whole thing and, and taking place in Texas and the focus just on the, uh, you know, the risk of their power structure down there uh, is something that will be just a, a huge catalyst to improve infrastructure uh, and improve it in potentially a sustainability way um, that maybe, you know, if you didn't have that case study, uh, it may not have been as strong of a point, David, that, um, you know, you, the, the need for upgrade is dire and, and here's why. Yeah. But first up, Carl, will be, of course, uh, the stimulus bill or whatever we want to call it, the $1.9 trillion bill working its way through, perhaps. And that's, uh, you know, when it comes to the markets, that's what I hear most about in my conversations. Throwing, you know, is it throwing fuel on an already fairly well-raging fire or not? Will it cause inflation? I know that we'll be taking a look at sort of the broader markets in a moment, including the bond market, which uh, can be a telltale sign. Sign. Yeah, man. Uh, Commodity prices on the one hand and then jobless claims still elevated this morning 
on the other hand. Guys, when we come back, we'll also dig into Walmart. Uh, it is a bottom line miss. Stock was under some pressure after the print, down about 5%. But uh, e-commerce up 69, got a wage increase, big CapEx ramp, a div hike, and of course, McMillan on our air later this morning. Don't go away. For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed internet. But the barriers to get connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at comcast.com slash project up. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Let's unpack Walmart this morning. Uh, bottom line miss, but revenue was ahead, up uh, 7-4, $100 billion quarter. Not many companies do that, David. I guess um, e-com up 69 is the slowest since COVID began. Uh, prior quarter was up 80. I wonder if that might be leaning on uh, just the general idea that there may be some deceleration as we come out of the pandemic. Yeah, that is a key question. And, you know, what a comparison is going to look like as well as we sort of come out and people get out, although conceivably they'll just be going to the store that they perhaps are now buying things from um, <laughs> remotely, so to speak. Uh, also focus, and I know we're going to be interested to hear from Mr. McMillan, uh, on their increase in the wage. Now, remember, it's raising the associate average to above $15 an hour. It's not raising the bottom. I think it's still $11, Leslie, uh, an hour. Remember, Amazon a couple of years back already went to 15 bucks an hour. But it is still significant. And Carl, you well remember when you uh, went down, I think, and interviewed Mr. McMillan a while back when they first started on that path towards raising wages. Uh, that was a seminal uh, move, um, a big move to start getting ahead of what became obviously a mainstream discussion, Leslie, about the minimum wage. You know, the other thing that strikes me, and David will remember this as well, is whenever Walmart starts to talk about investments, even from a position of financial strength, mm -hmm. uh, Street is often unkind in the beginning. Remember that day, David, we were wondering what was going on at Post 9 yes. with the shares. That was a big investment investor day. That's right. When they were upstairs at the end. Uh, at, and they, well, they also warned yep. that day, I think, as well, in part because of the increased investments they were making in the things that are now paying dividends, of course, Leslie, which is their ability to have operated during this pandemic and succeeded during it because, of course, of having the infrastructure they needed in place to get things to people at their doorstep or to have them come by and pick them up at the store without having to go inside. It proved to be obviously important not just for their long-term strategy, but shorter term given the unexpected consequences of the pandemic. Yeah, and I'm just still thinking about the days that we could all be together or post nine. Seems like <laughs> ancient history, but to your point, <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of companies, of course, have been disclosing just how much of a hit they're taking on the bottom line as it relates to the cost to protect their employees and, and others against COVID. Uh, for Walmart, uh, it was $1.1 billion in the quarter. That's up from $600 million. 
billion in the third quarter. So I think Amazon is somewhere along the lines of $4 billion. These companies have to uh, to really shell out some cash uh, and, and other intangibles as well. Uh, it's not only just cash, but uh, in order to make sure that they are uh, protecting customers, protecting employees, all of that adds up over time. And, and to Carl's point, you know, whenever you start to see numbers like that and others, SG&A also higher during the quarter, uh, you know, investors start to get a little spooked. And there's also this kind of sentiment right now where you see these these companies that have really benefited by staying open during the crisis, uh, you know, as things start to return to normal, as more people are vaccinated, you know, they do start to kind of take some money off of the table. Investors take some money off of the table for companies like this. Yeah, a bit of them do, but the Walton family doesn't. And that, of <laughs> course, Carl, has been the key for uh, Mr. McMillan as he's been able to make long-term decisions there, having uh, a shareholder representing roughly 50% almost of your sh- of your shares out. I haven't checked lately, but it usually is around there. That gives you latitude. Take a look at a five-year, guys, before we go to break, because that tells the story of McMillan uh, and his uh, and his time as CEO at the company, I think, Carl. It's, it's worth, there it is. That gives you a sense as to what's what's actually happened at, at Walmart. Yeah, that's uh, not a bad return for, for a, a behemoth like uh, WMT. Quick break here, guys. Opening bell getting a bit closer. We're back in a minute. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Got a surprise profit out of Twilio uh, this morning. Uh, stock's up almost 9%. We were looking for an $0.08 cent loss. Revenue ahead. Talked about broad-based diversified strength. Got a couple target increases, too. Rosenblatt goes to 550. Cowan goes to 540. We'll watch that with the opening bell in about five minutes. On the vaccine front this morning, Pfizer and Moderna warning that their vaccines have reduced effectiveness against the South African variant of the coronavirus. Both companies say they are taking steps to develop booster shots or update the current vaccines. Uh, David, the headline last night out of Reuters was a little uh, unnerving, although Fauci has said that that process of rejiggering the, the, the formula shouldn't be that onerous. And then Gottlieb this morning on Squawk, again, using the word collapsing when describing what COVID cases have done, not just in the U.S., but around the world. That's a good word to hear. Uh, and, you know, obviously we, yeah. we, we do listen closely to Dr. Gottlieb in terms of what his thoughts are. It, it, it can be worrisome. We are worried about these new variants uh, here, more the U.K. perhaps variant, which is obviously more transmissible and perhaps maybe more virulent. But we want them to collapse. Meanwhile, I'd just like to get, you know, a vaccine as soon as possible. I don't know about you. I know a number of friends who have the advantage of being younger than me, but perhaps I guess not as healthy because they've been able to get them, Leslie. Yeah. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not a lot of, of things qualify here in the New York area now. Heart murmurs and uh, BMI over 30. Um, unfortunately, those of us who are getting on in years, if you're healthy, you, you're not there yet. Yeah, I'm clinging to what Gottlieb said a few weeks ago uh, that, you know, if you want a vaccine, you should be able to get one by the end of next month. So that's kind of what I'm looking forward to with regard to, uh, you know, letting my arm 
uh, <laughs> be at the other side of that needle. <laughs> um, but no, it's I you know, of course, the variants have been the big variable out here. And I do have to wonder, you know, as they do prepare a booster shot um, in speaking with people who have been fortunate enough to get the vaccine. Will they be as willing to line up for a third shot? I know some people were a little hesitant to go back for their second one, which, of course, has been the benefit of the J&J shot. If it gets approved, is it just a single dose, Carl? So I think there is a, you know, a psychology to this um, that, you know, we have to consider as well. Yeah, J&J, of course, uh, that FDA panel expected to meet, I think, at the end of next week, unless uh, Meg Terrell corrects me. Uh, but uh, that has been... The hope that it's one shot, and of course, as Fauci said this week, uh, one of the uh, the negative bits of news that their inventory, at least at the outset, guys, is going to be fairly low, two to three million doses before they could ramp that up. There's the opening bell uh, and the S&P uh, screen filling in with Brett. Um, again, a little uh, weak here, David, as uh, I don't know. I mean, we had there is this lingering debate about at what level the 10 year mm-hmm. starts to become a true liability for stocks. I think Nomura is at 1.5, JPM closer to 2, and certainly we know what number the, is magic over at the Fed. Yeah, uh, I guess we do. You know, another question is, and I, we're, we're hearing from Powell, what, next week, I guess, he's got testimony in front of Congress. But, um, you know, if Leslie, if we get inflation, let's call it 25 to 3%, as some believe is going to be possible through the summer now, uh, given where we are in the economy, uh, and the expectations for what, 6% potentially growth this year when you throw $1.9 trillion in, not to mention potentially additional uh, spending on infrastructure, which is broadly supported, um, and all of that buying power. Uh, but this Fed typically doesn't seem overly concerned about that. And the likelihood seems to be that Powell's not going to pay that too much mind. But it is a question in the markets right now, and it is being reflected in that 10-year note, which... Uh, is over 1.3. I know. And it's uh, it's remarkable, especially when you look at, uh, you know, how things have kind of done basically a 180 over the course of a year. Um, I remember last February watching that tick down below 1%, uh, thinking, how could it get any lower than that? Of course, it did subsequently. But, um, you know, the inflation question is going to be a big one this year. Uh, what the Fed does about it, I think you're right. Most people in the market believe that they will uh, let inflation rise above that 2% level. Uh, the Fed has indicated as such. Um, but, you know, ultimately, when do they get to the point where, where raising rates becomes, uh, you know, at the forefront? And, and what does that mean for a lot of the uh, valuations in a variety of markets, namely equities, which has certainly benefited uh, from just su- such cheap money that's out there right now, Carl? Yeah, uh, the Fed minutes yesterday uh, did include some lines that led people to believe that Fed staffers are maybe a little more cautious than Powell himself, uh, talking about vulnerabilities and financial risks being, quote, notable. Uh, but we should learn more, as David said, when Powell talks to the Hill uh, next week. Right around 3900 this morning, guys. Uh, Bitcoin, <laughs> David, I don't know yeah. if you've seen uh, Gunlack's tweet about um, Bitcoin and gold. Uh, it is on pace for a 9% uh, weekly gain, fourth straight gain. Uh, haven't done that uh, since um, January. Yeah, uh, there it is, down about 1%, 50 <laughs> 52,000. I, I, I have nothing to offer on Bitcoin. Uh, I, I will th- I'll go to anybody else who wants to talk about it. I just I'm still <laughs> trying to understand blockchain. I gave up. I guess I got to try again. I, I don't know, Leslie. Um, 
But there it is. Uh, you know, obviously, it's moved up sharply since uh, we heard from Mr. Musk. I would point out, by the way, alternatively, growth stocks, um, many of the ones that we focus on so much, Tesla amongst them, uh, have sold off lately. Now, again, uh, from the highs that it saw, but it is only up. Tesla now 10 percent for the year. It's down another 2 percent this morning at $781. Apple uh, is down 3 percent this year. Facebook is down over 1 percent. Um, Netflix is barely up. We have seen sort of, you know, some of the fang names, obviously Tesla not a part of that, um, sell off a bit during the course of this year. While we have watched, and I mentioned this earlier, the banks in particular uh, perform quite well. Um, and Wells Fargo yesterday uh, performing quite well on those reports that perhaps uh, it, would, uh, it would be able to increase its balance sheet, uh, which would be a big deal for it. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about the stocks that have rallied this year, and this kind of goes back to our earlier point that we were discussing with GameStop. Uh, Matt Maley had a note out this morning looking at the 50 highest short interest stocks in the Russell 3000. Uh, There's basically a a basket, uh, an index that uh, looks at these. Uh, It's rallied 58 percent on an intraday basis over the first 18 trading days this year. He says that compares to a rally of 3.8% in the S&P 500 and an 11% rally in the Russell 2000 over the same time frame. I think this speaks to just this increasing attention. People are trying to get into these short squeezes. They saw the benefit with GameStop, even if it was just temporarily, and they're trying to replicate that by just looking at whatever stocks are heavily shorted at this point. I'm sure this will be a definite topic of conversation uh, in just a few hours' time virtually on Capitol Hill, Carl. Yeah, you know, Carl, I mean, you look at J.P. Morgan, for example, though, right at all-time highs, uh, you know, $430 billion market value at this point. And again, the banks have been very strong. Uh, City, the least amongst them, in part because it sends money to people, apparently, that don't need it or want it, but can keep it. So that's good. I mean, everybody might want to open a checking account at City because you never know what will end up in there. And a judge will say, yeah, you can keep it. <laughs> Talking about the $500 million that was uh, sent in uh, incorrectly uh, uh, on behalf of Revlon by City, paying off debt that Revlon wasn't actually paying off. It was just paying an $8 million interest payment. They sent off $900 million and they only got back about $400 million. You can see But people City- gave it back. Some did, but People not all. People gave the money back. I mean, yes. not all, for no, sure. No, $500 million didn't get paid back. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But so, I was just surprised that some, some hedge some funds did. actually did Well, they, yeah, I mean, the, the argument from the judge was you did not necessarily know whether or not it was, you would have never have assumed that Citi would be sending you this money incorrectly. You okay. would have assumed that Revlon was prepaying some, some debt, I guess. Although if you're a hedge fund and you want to do business with them in the future, I'm, yeah. you might have wanted to give the money back if it was sent to you incorrectly. But you may not want to sue them no. either. <laughs> yeah. Uh, City, uh, Jane Frazier obviously taking over there as CEO, but City stock has been the laggard. Uh, only up 4% so far this year. Wells Fargo up 20%. Uh, and as I mentioned, J.P. Morgan up 14%, Carl. So very strong performance in a number uh, of the big banks. Uh, and in part as a result of yeah. what we were talking about earlier, the move in the yield curve. Well, and to your point about Wells, uh, today J.P. Morgan finally goes up to neutral uh, with a price target of 37, which is essentially where it is, citing some of that progress with the Fed. But WFC, David, has gone from 20 to 37 in, what, 90 days? Yeah. Yeah, it's been a, uh, been a significant move. I mean, I remember when we were looking at that company's market value, and it was below $100 billion. It's now $150 billion. Again, put it in perspective, 
well below for the $440 billion market cap of J.P. Morgan, given their respective sizes aren't that far apart. But obviously, Wells Fargo, for example, has not been able to increase the size of its balance sheet. You know, even if you're not earning a huge net interest margin, Leslie, it pays to have more assets anyway, because you can earn more off them if you have fewer assets. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, you can also lose more money, of course, conceivably, if they go bad. But Wells has been capped. And that has been very difficult for the business. Yeah. Asset gathering. Uh, you know, speaking kind of of the financial sector, there was some an interesting move with regard to Apollo today. They appointed uh, Jay Clayton as lead independent director. Of course, Clayton was the former chair of the SEC, stepped down recently from that role. Uh, and this is this is interesting because it's all part of this shakeup uh, that Apollo is doing to be more corporate governance friendly. Uh, this move to appoint a lead independent director is part of that. They're moving Moving to this one share, one vote. Uh, of course, Leon Black uh, stepping down uh, at some point between now and July from his CEO role. Uh, so a lot of corporate governance changes there, uh, which we're seeing in the alternative assets industry as a whole. A lot of this is, you know, in an effort to get included into some of the indexes that they've previously been uh, excluded from, given their their structure. Um, but this is uh, certainly a newsworthy name, a, a newsworthy move uh, as a company that is certainly in transition. No doubt uh, it is uh, in transition. Um, Carl, forgive me, but I got to come back to two names I've mentioned a few times. I and mean, we're talking we're going to be talking a great deal this morning about stocks that have short, been heavily shorted uh, and then have moved up dramatically. Um, I don't know how fully that's just the story here on Viacom and Discovery. But I mean, take a look at Viacom shares. You know, last year we were talking about this company as though I mean, when nobody wanted to own it, when it traded at five times, EBITDA. everybody wanted to sell it. Now that it's trading at 10 times, everybody wants to own it. Uh, uh, that's not going to put it in perspective, guys. Just give me a, a couple of months here. 24 hours is nice. But, yeah, there's Jan 4. So that's 66% since the beginning of the year. 67% move since the beginning of the year. This thing's back towards almost its all-time all highs. Uh, and it does beg the question, I mean, they got football coming up, which is going to cost them a great deal. Uh, the expectation is that it's going to more or less be where everybody is right now. There's some question about the Thursday night game, Will you see Amazon try to come in for something? It's unclear. Um, but let's assume they're going to have to pay more. I mean, there have been some questions as to why not just sell some stock? You know, we, we, we talked and Jim talked endlessly about why GameStop didn't sell stock. Well, all right, they were under some perhaps some regulatory structures that prevented them from doing so in terms of things they would have had to put in. But nothing's stopping Viacom from doing that. I mean, pad the, pad the cash account to pay well, for football. <laughs> The fans want yeah. the football. Yeah, David, you know, yeah. we've, been, we've, been ta- we've been talking about this a lot with Jim uh, related to some of the media names, certainly GameStop. You saw Zillow uh, offers a billion in Class C. Uh, stock's down a touch on that. And did you see Chegg? Chegg raised um, the 9.4 million shares offered at 102. They're going to raise more in this round, David, than the whole company was worth at its IPO. That's incredible. Uh, and Chegg has been an incredible performer. Obviously, Dan Rosenzweig, a frequent guest of ours. You know, we used to bring him on to talk broadly about uh, the world. Uh, now we got to just bring him on as the CEO of a $13 billion market cap company. Mm-hmm. Talk to him about their business. But that's interesting. I had not seen that offering, um, uh, Carl. And yeah, they, I mean, I remember when that was a, that was a failed IPO, by the way. That, that thing went public and then went straight down. Uh, so there was an opportunity there to really, uh, Leslie, benefit if you go back and take a look at, well, there you can see it, the performance of that stock, 400%. Yeah, it, 
It's a remarkable capital markets environment right now. Last year, there was it was a record-setting year in terms of stock offerings, both primary uh, and secondary. And, uh, you know, that trend has not slowed down at all this year. You know, David and I and Carl, we've, we've talked tremendously about SPACs. That's a huge driver of this. Uh, but you also see companies doing follow-on sales as well. Uh, that is something where people see the window is open and they want to strike while the iron is hot because there's no guarantee uh, that it will stay open forever. And the last thing you want to do is miss out on the opportunity to, to sell some stock, get some cash, and uh, you know hunker down in case there's additional volatility in the future. Yeah. we we got to end, uh, Carl, before we get to Rick uh, on, on SPACs. Leslie just mentioned it. I'll, I'll do one today because we're going to have the guest on later. Uh, High Cape Capital Acquisition Corp. Uh, the deal there is um, proteomics. And actually, the gentleman is going to join us, Jonathan Rothberg, uh, who, I mean, uh, was on with Butterfly because that was also one of his inventions. Uh, it hasn't opened yet. Uh, Quantum SI, semiconductor chips, it's proteins as opposed to DNA. It's actually decoding proteins, which help with specifically sort of giving you a sense as to what disease you're dealing with and how to treat it. We'll talk to him a lot about that. I mentioned this, though, because in the pipe was Kathy Wood from ARC, and that seems to have excited a lot of people mm -hmm. as well. Um, not a large deal. Not a large overall SPAC deal, Leslie, when they issued it, but the pipe's almost $500 million. It's got some very well-known names in it, including ARC, as I said, and it's going to be up sharply. We're going to talk to him later, see what he has to say, Carl. All right, guys. Uh, so we are lower across the board. Uh, it is still on pace for the best month since November for the Dow and the S&P, and Walmart's dragging about 50 points off the Dow. Let's get to Rick Santelli. Hey, Rick. Hi, Carl. You know, we had some big data today regarding the notion of inflation and pricing pressures in the form of import and export prices. But yesterday, we had the January read on PPI, and I'd like to revisit that as inflation is such a hot topic. And as you see on this chart, the current itineration of how they calculate headline PPI or final demand was changed. They've changed it many times, actually. But this one goes back to around December of 2000. 10 when the change was made. So the chart goes back to that point. Yesterday's read was the highest on record for this particular form of PPI. And I think that needs to be mentioned. I know that CPI may be more important, but we're starting to see it everywhere. Whether it's temporary or it starts to get embedded, as Steve Leesman brought out, that's the issue. All right, quickly, look at intraday of 10s. You can clearly see the data today pushing yields higher. And if you look at a week-to-date chart of 10s, we're at 131. Now, 133 is the high intraday, as you see, twice. It's a double top, but I wouldn't look for that to hold. And 132 is the high close, going back basically a year. If you look at a three-day of 30s, you can see 209 now. 209 is the high close, 211 intraday. Why am I giving you all these numbers? To show you how close we are, there's good momentum. We're still rather guns hot on sovereign rates, especially treasuries. And finally, let's do 10 of 10. Here's a 10-year chart of 10-year rates, and I'm going to continue to hit this one because it's an easy trade. We are going into the high 130s. That's the double bottoms of 12 and 13. Whether it stops there for very long may be the biggest issue of all. Carl, back to you. All right, Rick, we'll see you in a bit. Uh, Rick Santelli, as we said earlier, later this afternoon, an exclusive with the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen. Sarah Eisen will sit down with her at 4 o'clock Eastern time on the closing bell. We're back in a moment.
Apple shares have not closed below the 50-day moving average since November 25th, but they did it yesterday. And adding to some losses this morning, obviously drawing a lot of attention to Fang in general, down more than a percent to 129 and change. More Squawk on the Street continues in a moment. Analog devices out with an earnings beat yesterday. Shares, though, down slightly after the semiconductor company warned that global chip shortages will continue for the remainder of this year. Joining us now in a CNBC exclusive is the company's CEO, Vincent Roche. And Vincent, I'd love to start with that chip shortage. Uh, you know, you, you, you came back to it on the call a number of times uh, where you basically said it's more likely we'll be operating a constrained supply environment for the balance of the year. Just give me a sense as to what you're seeing and what it's going to mean for your business. Good morning and thanks for having me. Well, I think what we're looking at is the uh, acceleration of the process of digitalization in the economy, you know, whether it's communications, uh, computing, uh, gaming, uh, obviously areas like factory automation. So I think we're in for a period of acceleration and, um, you know, increasing demand for semiconductors. And uh, so that is that's good news for the industry. And we're all doing our best to rapidly adjust uh, for us, uh, we have a very agile supply chain. So we actually turned out in our second quarter, we grew 20% year over year. Uh, we have been able to essentially keep up with demand. And um, I think uh, that bodes well for the rest of the year, at least for ADI. But I do think that the industry is going to have to adjust. It takes a period of time to get the equipment in place, to get the capacity in place. Right. Uh, to be able to meet all of the uh, demand streams that we have here. Yeah. Now, specific to you, I know your CFO on your call said you have enough capacity to meet your guidance, but significant yeah. additional upside versus that guide will depend on your ability to get external wafers uh, as well as the capital that you're in the process of deploying in your internal facilities to, to make that happen, too. Yeah, well, we've done a couple of things. We have a hybrid supply chain. So we make a certain amount. We make about half our silicon inside the company. We make it, we procure about half outside. And, um, you know, we've been capitalizing our business to make sure that we can extend the envelope of possible capacity and supply over the long term. So we feel pretty good about where we are right now. And uh, but we're investing in the business. And yeah. working very, very close with our, with our suppliers to make sure that we can supply the diversity of products that we have that go from factory automation to 5G uh, to computing and server systems, for example. Yeah, you hit all, man, you hit all sorts of stuff that gets investors excited in your call. I mean, you're talking about robots and the future of work, as you point, you're talking about EV and the batteries, because uh, you, you guys have the battery management systems. And as you mentioned, 5G. Vincent, what, what's the most important single component of that uh, in, in terms of the future for this company and what obviously you hope will be growing market and market demand for your products? Well, I think, Dave, the, the theme for ADI, we are a unique company in that we sit between the world of the physical and the world of the digital. And so our job is to translate all those physical phenomena like motion, light, uh, sound into signals that can be processed right into the cloud. So that is the game we play, and we have the broadest suite of high-performance technologies. We play a very, very high-performance game. Uh, so you will see our technologies used in everything from smartphones to cobots to electric vehicles, as you mentioned, both uh, 
uh, in the cabin as well as in the battery structures, for example, monitoring the batteries. So it's a, it's a very, very diverse play, but our game really sits very, very neatly between that physical and digital intersection. Uh, Vincent, Leslie Picker here. Uh, the Semiconductor Industry Association, the SIA, uh, recently sent a letter to the Biden administration uh, asking for additional funding for U.S. semiconductors due to some of these supply constraints. Uh, I was wondering if you could extrapolate on, you know, what the industry might need. Uh, I think you are a member of the SIA uh, and can yeah. kind of speak to the industry's uh, requirements from the federal government at this time. Well, I think anything that um, improves the infrastructure to build what it, semiconductors are the bedrock of the digital economy. And anything that we can do to improve the, the infrastructure and the focus on areas like, uh, you know, advanced uh, semiconductor manufacturing nodes, process nodes, uh, to up the ante in areas like artificial intelligence, quantum, quantum computing for the long term. I think those are really, really good things for America to do because the future is going to be digital. Finally, on EV batteries in particular, we have a, uh, quite a few CEOs of still development stage companies that join us, Vincent, talking about the promise for their technology. You obviously are dealing with many of them given your battery management system. I mean, are we making, is it real? Are the advances that everybody's touting actually going to happen in terms of the efficiency and the ability to deliver the solid state batteries as well? Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, I think when you look at the, the opportunity today, there's about 7 million electric vehicles on the road across the globe. Uh, that's expected to go to more than 200 million in the 2030 timeframe. There are continuous efforts to improve the efficiency of batteries using new chemistries. Uh, but electronics play a key role there, too. The battery solutions that we have, given their accuracy, uh, enable about a 20% efficiency in a, in a given battery structure. So I think it's the intersection of chemistry and electronics, and uh, we'll continue to push the efficiencies. You know, we're, we're looking at car companies now trying to get 1,000 kilometers of charge in a battery. So we're on the road. It's going to take time, but um, I think we know what to do. All right. Well, we'll be tracking that as well as uh, your company. Always appreciate your taking some time. Thank you, Vincent. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We'll take a break here. Another hour of Squawk on the Street continues in a moment. Markets are lower across the board. 10-year 131, 30-year uh, 209. We're back in a moment. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.